The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Though His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, and by God's grace, episodes to follow, we revisit a popular topic wherein we continue to look at various apparent supposed Bible contradictions presented by atheists, skeptics, and humanists. As before, we will examine them against what the Bible says in context according to proper exegesis using the languages in question, correct grammar, the culture of the day, and most importantly, the prism of spiritual discernment given by God to those who truly desire to understand his revelation of himself and his relationship to man. As a prelude to answering any apparent Bible contradictions, if you, as a listener, have not done so already, listening to the introductory episode regarding questions about contradictions 
will be an indispensable prologue to fully understanding, or more importantly, answering any question or apparent contradiction which exists. Therefore, I will have to rely from this point forward on the listener to faithfully adopt the biblical posture of the Berean Bible student who is willing and able to do their own respective homework in order to avoid the pitfalls inherent from failing to do so. For our next randomly selected question and apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, Does God answer prayer or not? In order to construct this supposed contradiction, Mr. Ash quotes the following verses. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, and Luke chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, both of which say, quote, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened." Unquote. Also, John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, quote, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it." Unquote. And finally, John chapter 16, verses 23 and 24, quote, And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full." Unquote. Now, in this case, in order for Mr. Ash to prove that there is a contradiction, Mr. Ash looks at the world throughout history and makes note of the fact that there are and have been serious, desperate people who have prayed to God for things which they greatly needed, and in many, many cases, those people did not receive the things which they were praying for. Hence, since Mr. Ash interprets these verses to be a contractual guarantee from God that every single prayer that any person asks or prays will be answered in the affirmative, and since they are not, then Jesus lied and God does not exist. Here again, the issue is that Mr. Ash is being purposely hyper-literal. 
Mr. Ash is, as usual, taking verses out of their theological context to the whole of Scripture. Finally, Mr. Ash is making the error of false equivocation due to his incorrect world and life view. So, let's look at the issue. First of all, Matthew chapter 7 verses 7 and 8 and Luke chapter 11 verses 9 and 10, which again say, quote, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Unquote. Now, if we continue reading in Matthew with verses 9 through 11, immediately following what we just quoted from Mr. Ash, we find this, quote, Or what man is there of you, whom, if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or, if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Unquote. Notice here that we have a qualifying contingency in verse 11. While Mr. Ash would like us to come away believing that God is saying he grants all things without any question to every prayer regardless, Verse 11, in fact, qualifies it by saying that God will give, quote-unquote, good things. Well, the $64,000 question is, how do we define, quote-unquote, good things? And who is in charge of, in fact, defining what is, quote-unquote, good and what is not. You see, the dirty little secret is that Mr. Ash has set himself up as the ultimate authority who defines what is good and what is not. Because Mr. Ash does not see God doing what Mr. Ash defines as quote-unquote good, Mr. Ash is upset and accuses God of lying or not existing because God refuses to conform to Mr. Ash's authority. But in reality, God is the ultimate authority for meaning, morals, truth, beauty, significance, and reality. God has an ultimate plan for everything which is according to His own perfect sovereign will and purpose. It is God who evaluates and dictates what is good from moment to moment, from person to person, and from situation to situation in order to achieve his overall plan, which is good.
In order to clarify, we could demonstrate the absurdity of Mr. Ash's hypocrisy. For example, every parent, including Mr. Ash, has likely said at one point or another, quote, there's nothing good I wouldn't give my child, unquote, as a way of saying they love their child completely. Yet, how many times do we see examples of an immature child who asks for an automobile at 11 years old, or a sharp knife at 5 years old, or an elephant because they just went to the circus? Now, what if the child were clever enough to record the parent saying, quote, there's nothing I wouldn't give my child, unquote. If the child then confronts the parent with this recording of what the parent says, and the parent then refuses to concede to giving an automobile, a knife, or an elephant to the child, does it mean that the parent lied or the parent is unloving, or that the parent doesn't exist? No. Clearly, the issue is that the parent's statement has been taken out of context. It makes no difference that the parent has the power to grant these wishes. The fact is that the parent understands that the ultimate good for the child dictates that saying, quote-unquote, no, or postponing granting the request will be in the best interest of the child and will demonstrate the highest, quote-unquote, good according to the parent's wisdom. Similarly, we could demonstrate the absurdity of the matter this way. If I dislike people with red hair, can't I just pray that God disintegrates everyone who has red hair? Since I want a world with people who agree and think the way I think, can't I pray and ask God to eliminate everyone who disagrees with me? Since I only want a world where everyone is exactly the same and everything is perfect, nobody is hungry, nobody is thirsty, everything is 100% fair, there is never any adversity, can't I just pray and demand that God stop whatever he is doing and simply do what I want? What if different people want different things? What if what one person wants or needs conflicts with what another person wants or needs? Or more importantly, what if what I want or what I think and what I need conflicts with what God has planned and knows to be perfect? Well, these are exactly what we are dealing with in this scenario that Mr. Ash has presented with God. God is omniscient and knows, in fact, what the greatest good, in fact, is. 
The fact that we don't know, don't understand, or don't agree with what the good is, is immaterial. Be that as it may, the point is that because we are finite, we may want things, we may even need things, but the things we want and need may not in fact be in keeping with what is best for us, and they may or may not be in keeping with what is the greatest good for God's overall plan. Another point is that James 4.3 makes this exact point by saying, quote, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts, unquote. A second contextual issue is this. Notice that it is the Father, i.e. God, who is the subject to whom those who are his children pray to and make their requests according to his will. Therefore, in order for prayer to be effective, the one asking must, by necessity, have a relationship with God to begin with. As a practical example, I would encourage Mr. Ash to randomly drive down an unfamiliar street and walk up to an unfamiliar house that he has never been to. Once there, try knocking on the door or ringing the doorbell, and when the man of the house answers, try to convince him that he should include you in his inheritance along with his actual biological children. I predict that Mr. Ash is going to have the homeowner tell him, quote, get away from me, I never knew you, unquote, and then slam the door in his face. The following verses bear this truth out. John chapter 15, verse 29, quote, We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him, unquote. Also, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 29, quote, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous, unquote. And finally, Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, Quote, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many marvelous and done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Unquote. Next, we have John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, which says, quote, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, 
shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye ask anything in my name, I will do it." Unquote. Here, in this verse, Mr. Ash is arguing one or both of two things. One, if Jesus is God and he is telling the truth, then every Christian who believes Jesus should be able to do the same or greater miracles than Jesus did. Two, if we want or need something, all we have to do is string a sentence together with our want or need and Jesus' name, and he is compelled to grant our wish. Well, the problem is that Mr. Ash assumes that when Jesus uses the word, quote-unquote, works, that Jesus is referring exclusively to his miracles which he performed. Well, yes, it must be admitted that Jesus performed many miracles during his lifetime, which one could justifiably refer to as quote-unquote works. But miracles are not the only thing which Jesus did during his life which can be referred to as quote-unquote works. Jesus, in fact, demonstrated perfect wisdom, perfect love, perfect justice, perfect obedience, and perfect adherence to God's law. All of these are quote-unquote works. Consequently, we could and do make the argument that what John is quoting here reminds us of the following theological truth. If, by God's grace, we exercise complete faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, then by virtue of his completed work on the cross and his atonement, which he makes in ascending to the Father, we who have Christ's nature imputed to us have those same works covering us and God is pleased. So, John is in fact reminding us of the truth and nature of justification. Again, it must be remembered that whatever the quote-unquote works unquote are, then certainly, if our theory is correct, a sincere belief or faith is a prerequisite which is required if, in fact, we are going to be able to, quote, do the same or greater works, unquote. However, I would submit that Jesus is not focusing on his believers doing miracles because Jesus' miracles were primarily demonstrated to show and to prove his identity as Messiah and God. For anyone with a serious desire to look 
this has been accomplished. Thus, if there are miracles today, they exist and are accomplished for a different reason. Namely, if and when we, as Jesus' followers, do miracles, if that is the case, miracles are always intended to first and foremost glorify God and to accomplish His purpose. But who's kidding who? When is the last time Mr. Ash gave glory or praise to God for a miracle? Mr. Ash runs around making a living denying that miracles exist or claiming that there is a quote-unquote scientific explanation behind every miracle, which is really just a misunderstood incident. This begs the question, is God's purpose to have completed perfection here on earth at this very moment in time? It, is it God's purpose that everyone on earth should be focused exclusively on being completely satisfied and happy with their temporal lives? Well, the obvious biblical answer is no. God's revelation makes it clear that God is dealing with sin and rebellion, which man has chosen. From the perspective of Mark chapter 8, verse 36, we should remind ourselves, quote, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Unquote. In other words, from a correct biblical perspective, prayer should first and foremost be about having God justify us and sanctify us so that we are conformed into the image of his Son. Prayer should mainly be about the health of our soul and our relationship to God to prepare us for eternity. Physical health, wealth, and the cares of this world should be secondary and should never distract us from our primary goal. In the second case, if we are going to make the case that all we as finite humans have to do is speak and we can create whatever situation we want, then we have effectively made ourselves God and we are the equivalent of Veruca Salt and God is simply a cosmic bellhop or vending machine which dispenses whatever we want without cost or argument. We can then ask for things which are outside of God's will or apart from God's will, and it is God's job and problem to figure out how to bend the universe to meet the needs of billions of people who may be asking for things which contradict one another or which fly in the face of God's ultimate plan for salvation. This kind of ask and receive puts every man in control of the universe, and God is simply a wishing well without any intellect or input. Finally, we have John chapter 16, verses 23 and 24, which says, quote, 
And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full." Unquote. Well, here again, as with the other verses quoted before, prayer is never in a vacuum. Prayer is ultimately an exercise to move our desires, our wishes, our needs, and our will to fall into conformity with the ultimate sovereign will of God. And it is not a crowbar or a genie's lamp designed to force God to conform himself to our will. In the end, Jesus himself contradicts Mr. Ash and sets the record clear on prayer in both Matthew chapter 6 verse 10 and Luke chapter 11 verse 2. Quote, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Whose will? God's will. In the end, God does answer prayer. The answer can be yes, no, wait, or I have something better. Let's be honest. The problem is that God does not always answer prayer the way that we imagine he should. That's hard enough for believers. But when you're Mr. Ash and you are already predisposed to be antagonistic, rebellious, and angry with God, then any excuse for said rebellion will help in justifying your position. For more information on the issue of prayer, I would direct those interested to the three-part episode entitled Questions About Prayer. For our next randomly selected apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, Wasn't Jesus mistaken when he said that he was the only one who had ascended into heaven? Mr. Ash obtains his supposed contradiction from the following verses. John chapter 3, verse 13, which says, Quote, and no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven, unquote. Mr. Ash then compares this verse to the following verses. Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, quote, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him, unquote. Also, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, quote, And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, unquote. Here, the answer to Mr. Ash's dilemma is Context, context, 
context. In order to resolve the contradiction, or better yet, by reading correctly with discerned context, we can understand what's going on without ever creating a contradiction to begin with. The solution is in reading all of the surrounding discussion in John 3. In this case, starting in John chapter 3, verse 1, we read that a man named Nicodemus, who is a trained Pharisee, meets Jesus. In verse 2, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and acknowledges that Jesus has, quote, come from God, unquote, because in Nicodemus's estimation, no man can do the miracles which Jesus has done unless God is with him. In verses 3 to 8, Jesus informs Nicodemus that a man must be born from above in order to see and enter the kingdom of God. In verse 9, Nicodemus questions how these things can be. In verse 10, we pick up the conversation up verbatim in order to put Mr. Ash's quote into full context. Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. So here, the key to resolving Mr. Ash's problem is to understand that Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about spiritual matters and things of heaven, which can only be understood or taught by someone who has direct first-hand experience due to having been in or from heaven. Since Jesus came from heaven and God the Father, Jesus was the only person who had come down from heaven and who could testify of heavenly things correctly. To paraphrase what Jesus is saying in verse 13 in context, we could say, quote, There is no one who has been to heaven and returned who can tell you the truth except me, unquote. Verse 13 then has nothing to do with whether or not Enoch, Elijah, or anyone else had or had not ascended into heaven. Jesus is not denying that anyone else has or will ascend to heaven. Whether we are talking about Enoch, Elijah, or anyone else, the point is, is that Jesus is the only one who 
because he is from heaven, can give definitive testimony with certitude on earth as to what is going on in heaven. So this is simply another example where Mr. Ash carefully selects, cuts and pastes one verse out of context, and then attempts to make his isolated verse or portion thereof say things which they were never meant to say for the sole purpose of then selecting other verses in order to construct unwarranted supposed contradictions for his own benefit. Consequently, once again, using a proper world and life view, there are no contradictions here. No fundamental assaults which destroy the Christian message. There is only an inability or unwillingness for Mr. Ash to understand what the basic message of the gospel is, along with the unregenerate mind of Mr. Ash, who must at all costs deny God in order to justify himself. In all, to date, in this series, we have in each case serious questions posed by various individuals who hold themselves out to be scholars, critical thinkers, intellectuals, and the like, who collectively fall under the pseudonym of Mr. Ash. These and others are questions which individually and collectively serve as the basis by which we are intended to come to the conclusion that the Bible is not God's word, but rather a collection of myths and fables only to be believed by the simple-minded and the gullible. However, in truth, these 56 and a myriad remaining others are nothing more than apparent contradictions which exist and remain largely, if not exclusively, due in fact to Mr. Ash's inability or unwillingness to do his research, coupled with his unwillingness to open his mind and heart to God and his word. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I would encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Bye.